Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMAP's Middle East Books podcast, our series of conversations with authors with new books. Joining us today is Stephen Brook, University of Wisconsin at Madison, author of the book Winning Hearts and Votes, Social Services and the Islamist Political Advantage, published recently by Cornell University Press. Uh, Stephen, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about the book. What were you trying to achieve when you set out to write it? What do you think the main contributions of the book have been? Well, and I'm sure as you know, you and a lot of your listeners know, one of the kind of key things that we often hear about Islamist movements like the Muslim Brotherhood is that one of the reasons why they're popular is that they provide all sorts of things like clinics and schools and things like that. And this kind of makes people support them in elections or mobilize for them or just think kind of, you know, positively about these organizations. And so one of the things I wanted to do with the book was basically empirical. I just wanted to kind of see if I could research these things that everyone talks about and everyone seems to think matter. But at the same time, there's just not a lot of material. You know, there wasn't a place you could go and find how many patients the Brotherhood's clinic served or how they were funded how they related to the state or anything like that. And then the, on the theoretical side, I wanted to kind of contribute to this literature, this kind of new literature on non-state social service provision. So when actors do things like providing medical care, or providing schooling or things like that, how does that change the way that people think about these organizations? And how does that actually manifest in terms of these political outcomes that we care about, like voting? Why don't we start with that, that the first part that you said, um, which is about the absence of reliable information about this? Because you're right, we often just kind of make assumptions about uh, what they're doing. And what did you do when you set out to try and find out what was actually happening on the ground in terms of this uh, Muslim Brotherhood social service provision? Yeah, so uh, this was a really kind of frustrating thing for me as somebody who had spent time studying the Brotherhood. Just everybody took this idea as a given. But at the same time, when you started to look for, you know, a book or an article or even kind of reliable news reports about this stuff, it just you couldn't find anything. And, you know, there were people who had kind of written generally about the topic. And so, you know, Janine Clark has a great book on this. Carrie Wickham also has some stuff on it. But I thought I really wanted kind of a, a focused study about the Muslim Brotherhood. And so when I started the research, the kind of the first question that I asked is, you know, pretend that I could have access to all the information in the world. What is the type of stuff that I would like to know about this particular phenomenon? And then as I kind of filled out that matrix, I kind of thought to myself, well, you know, this stuff is, is difficult to get, uh, but it's not impossible. And the stuff that I would want that I can't get, I can figure out some workarounds. And so I thought, okay, you know, I'd like to know where these facilities are located. And so I could go find them on a map. And then I could say, okay, I want to know uh, how they related to the state. So I could go into archival evidence, the Brotherhood's old magazines, and I could answer that story. And then I want to know how these things work on the inside. So I could visit these facilities. And I did a period of field work in Egypt. I was very lucky in that it kind of coincided, you know, right during Egypt's democratic uh, transition where I could actually do this stuff. Um, and then I wanted to know how does this affect the beliefs and behaviors of people who benefit from it? And so that was something that was kind of amenable to a large scale uh, or a survey that I could kind of 
put an experimental manipulation in to kind of get at that question. And so it's kind of building up this kind of narrative and building up this answer to this puzzle uh, from the ground, really. And methodologically, it's interesting. I mean, you're, you're there with this group of, uh, I think, kind of younger scholars like yourself who really do a, kind of a, a layered level of mixed methods, uh, kind of looking at this question from a number of different angles to try and get at this stuff. It's very interesting how you're able to layer these different methods on each other. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of really important for me, just kind of methodologically, just how, how I kind of think about social phenomenon. But it was also important for me just in terms of trying to, you know, answer some of these specific questions and that, you know, for instance, you know, one of the things that really came out of this archival evidence was that the Brotherhood really focused all of this work on paying and middle class customers. And you could see that kind of shot through the way that they talked about this enterprise in the pages of Adawa, their, their magazine back in the 1970s. And so I thought, well, that's really interesting. And then there's a number of implications of this about these facilities are going to be located in middle class areas. Uh, if we go to these facilities, we're going to find that people who use them pay for the services. Uh, if we go and ask people, how do these things make you feel? Or how, you know, do you use these facilities? We're going to see them overweighted towards middle class individuals. And so just kind of trying to use those different types of information to track down all of these different implications of the, you know, other material I was finding helped tell kind of, I think, a satisfying story. And that story, that, that's one of the key arguments that you make is not just that they tend to be concentrated in middle class areas, which I think we, we kind of knew that from Janine Clark's book, but also this very interesting argument you make about the fact that uh, people tend to pay for their services instead of it being some kind of charitable contribution. Yeah, I mean, that was uh, extremely surprising for me. Kind of my initial expectations when I started the fieldwork for this was, you know, I was going to find these facilities, you know, staffed with members of the Muslim Brotherhood who were devoting their time to working in these, you know, these medical facilities. They were doing it for free and that the people who were using them were going to be poor and kind of destitute. And that wasn't the case at all. And and I think that does really back up kind of Janine Clark's kind of seminal work on this topic, right? These are middle-class enterprises. Um, the extension, I would say, is that, you know, I'm interested in kind of how that particular facet of operation, paying for service rather than exchange of this explicitly for a vote or provision of it as charity or something like that, has an effect downstream on electoral behavior. How does it make you think about these candidates? And so one of the kind of implications of the book or one of the broader uh, contributions of it is to link it to this question about campaigning. And so as I show, you know, providing this service as a paid, you know, uh, a paid benefit, right? Where you go in and it's well stocked, the people who you work with are very professional, they're depoliticized the way that it would kind of be at a normal clinic, but there's still this kind of underlying affiliation with the Muslim Brotherhood. One of the things that it does is it changes the way that people think about these candidates and it kind of helps them form impressions about what the Brotherhood stands for and it affiliates them with things like honesty and competency and modesty, 
which are really valuable from a po- political perspective. If you and a can- if you as a candidate can put out those traits, it goes kind of a long way in kind of helping you win over voters. Which is very different from the more traditional clientelist understanding. Uh, we give you something and then you vote for us. Yeah, I th- I think that's right. Uh, it's it's really kind of taking away the focus on the exchange, and we can also just kind of think about it uh, as you know, just in in terms of kind of um, kind of from a strategic perspective, you know, one of the kind of arguments for why kind of clientelism works is that you know your your receipt of the good is kind of beneficial on your political behavior, right? So if you stop voting for the party, you're no longer going to get the good. Um, but the thing that I'm kind of arguing is that there, it's a little bit more subtle and it's kind of this attitudinal change that's going on underneath the surface is one of the reasons why this method of social service provision is so powerful electorally. And it was very interesting with your discussion of some of your encounters in these, uh, in these hospitals or in these clinics where they're actually explicitly forbidding overt political campaigning or pol- political mobilization. Yeah, that was kind of something that I, I wasn't expecting really to find. And I was kind of asking some of the, as I go through in the book, you know, one of the things I was kind of asking is like, you know, how to, you know, how do you kind of deal with people who want to make this about like a pure exchange based form of, of politics or something like that? And, you know, people would kind of say, we just don't do that. We don't do that. We don't do that. And my kind of response uh, for a while was kind of to say, well, yeah, I mean, you're telling me this and like, you know, I want to believe you, but what's just, you know, I don't really know what's actually going on in these facilities all the time. And so I had this moment where one of the managers kind of pulled out this internal disciplinary letter just sent within the administration where he's effectively rebuking this doctor who was politicking on the job. And this is kind of just a purely internal letter. And it really kind of drove home to me that, yeah, like they, they take this seriously. Um, the flip side is, you know, that was kind of conditioned by the fact that like they were an open and legal organization, right? They, they abided by all of the laws that were put in place by, you know, the Sadat and the Mubarak governments, which really expressly forbid this type of politicization. So it was kind of both just, I think, savviness on their part, but it was also uh, conditioned by just having to kind of stay on the right side of the law. And they really struggled with this after the regime fell, right? And they had this push to kind of politicize their services, change the way that they were operating as elections really became kind of the key way that people contested for political power after 2011. Let's go back a little bit uh, to kind of an earlier step uh, in your argument um, and kind of back to the beginning. Uh, One of the things that you really engage with early on in the book is this question of why the regime allowed this in the first place? Why, why permit the development of this alternative, you know, set of social services, you know, uh, uh, something which could in principle compete with the state? Why did Sadat allow this in the 1970s in the first place? Yeah, so this is kind of the, the first puzzle for me that really kind of jump-started the book, which is you have these authoritarian regimes that devote a lot of time and energy to managing that political situation and kind of keeping their opponents under wraps electorally. 
But oftentimes those same opponents, they operate these kind of long-scale social service products that allow them to reach just huge parts of the citizenry. And so that was kind of a weird disjuncture for me. And the, the kind of inductive way that I build this argument is just looking at Egypt in the 1970s. And one of the things that I find that was kind of going on is that right as the Brotherhood social services are taking off, Sadat is facing this real major kind of resource crunch. And so he's trying to kind of back the state out of its social and economic commitments kind of under uh, under Nasser. But at the same time, he's kind of realizing, and the bread riots put this in very, very sharp relief for him, that, you know, you can't just cut these benefits or you're else going to face this kind of popular uh, mobilization. And so I think it's telling that you see kind of the Brotherhood get permission, official permission for this enterprise just a few months after the bread riot uh, uh, kind of start. And so I, I also think that it's important, though, to not paint this as purely a picture of the Muslim Brotherhood. This was like a widespread attempt by Sadat to leverage kind of the, you know, the, the Egyptian civil society, and it cut across Muslim and Christian providers, it cut across groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, and it cut, you know, to even kind of small local mosques that they tried to mobilize in support of providing these types of goods to individuals. Because for them, this was one way out of this dilemma of how do you kind of cut your expenditures while also forestalling the possibility of this really widespread social mobilization that could threaten the regime. And so, and, and so then they kind of go out there and they begin providing this stuff. But as you said, they're extremely careful to stick to the law, to have some level of transparency, even as they remain technically a banned organization. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, this is kind of one of the interesting things about uh, the research process is just initially I was expecting that, that these facilities were going to be kind of underneath, you know, the radar of the state or they were going to be kind of hidden away, kind of fly by night enterprises. But really, you know, I kind of kept coming up against these points where it showed just how integrated these services were into the, the state. I mean, they were providing dialysis services and being reimbursed by the Egyptian government for them. They were kind of all throughout the official record of the Egyptian government in terms of notifications and changes in, you know, changes in status and kind of all these things that in, in contrast to these arguments that the Brotherhood is operating where the state can't see them or kind of trying to remain out of sight, they're, they're kind of purely above ground or not purely, but kind of mostly above ground. And that's a trade-off, I think, very interestingly, that they were kind of willing to make, you know, depoliticize your services, uh, function above ground, submit to regime monitoring. And generally, you can do this type of social service activism that kind of slowly builds this kind of long-term support for the movement. So did, do you think then that there's some kind of inherent uh, self-limiting nature to that? I mean, to the extent that if they do begin to try and convert this into political advantage, over time, it erodes the sources of that advantage? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think looking at really what happened after 2011 is a nice way to kind of tease this out. And so, you know, one of the things that the Brotherhood had going for it under Mubarak was, you know, that elections weren't kind of the be-all and end-all of politics. I mean, you could win your 
particular seat in the people's assembly, or you could even win a few dozen seats in the assembly. And, you know, you're, you're kind of, you know, naturally limited just in the fact that the regime is the one kind of making policy and you can kind of work on the margins and, and, you know, introduce some accountability and these types of things. And so the brotherhood never really had to reckon with kind of truly being held politically accountable in the sense of being in charge of kind of the regime. And so I think, you know, it helped them through their social services generate this aura of competence and honesty and modesty. And this was kind of valuable because, you know, it was tangible. People saw this in their social service initiatives. But it was also especially stark because you could set it against, you know, the NDP government or, you know, the Mubarak government just kind of dramatically lacking in these kind of things, like these, these, these types of qualities. You know, people thought it was corrupt and it was brutal and wasn't particularly well-managed. And I think the Brotherhood, after 2011, when they started winning elections and kind of having this power for themselves, really truly being held accountable, to some extent, I think it kind of exposed the limitations of this approach because, you know, being honest and competent and modest because people are having good experiences uh, at your social service enterprises is one thing. When it has to compete with the fact that you can't get the economy started and you seem to be kind of bumbling the transition, alienating opponents, uh, that's kind of a comparatively more powerful source of information for individuals. So part of that, it seems then to be inherent um, in kind of the political structure, but then there was also a lot of just really intense polarization and media campaigns and, you know, a lot of this, uh, you know, kind of through the political process, um, the demonization of the Muslim Brotherhood. Did you see anything of that during your research of how that affected the um, kind of the way people thought? about the brothers or about these Islamic um, uh, clinics and hospitals, I mean, did they also, did the demonization encompass even these professional service-based things? Yeah, that's a good question, Mark. I mean, I, I guess I can answer it in one of two ways. I mean, first is to say, no, it, it didn't, right? And so one of the things that I did is I ran a survey, uh, as I mentioned, and this uh, survey took place because of some logistical delays out of the coup. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things I did was I asked people in the survey, have you ever been to a Muslim Brotherhood hospital? What are the things that come to your mind? You know, if you have been, just give me some short kind of descriptive words or phrases. And it's very interesting in that survey because you can even subset the, the results by people who said at the outset of the survey, like, I would never vote for the Brotherhood under any circumstances, mm -hmm. right? So these are people who are, like, staunch Brotherhood opponents. And even they describe the social service facilities as high quality, honest, modest, like, the, all of these kind of things that effectively the general population says, too. So in that sense, I don't know that there is kind of much polarization of these services for individuals. Um, on the other hand, it's also interesting, I talk a little bit about this in the conclusion, that some interviews with uh, these Brotherhood service providers after the coup, uh, they really see that they made a mistake in that one of the things that they allowed during this period, 2011, 2012, 2013, is despite some of their best efforts, um, the social services became pretty polarized or, or excuse me, pretty politicized. And this was particularly the case in early 2013. 
And so a lot of these brotherhood leaders who are involved in this effort, you know, they kind of look back on this period and say, we really made a mistake in kind of squandering this image that we had built of being professional and nonpartisan, and, you know, performatively distancing ourselves from any political gain from our social service activities. Uh, and then they say, you know, w- we made a mistake, right? We, we tried to make these things political when fundamentally, like, they're not political. And so the Brotherhood certainly behaves as if they have been polarized around these things. Um, I don't know kind of widespread opinion on that, but to the extent that um, my survey kind of has those interesting results for the opponents, uh, maybe it's not as, as widespread uh, as, as they feared. Hmm. Um, so then... You know, when you when you look at the um, the uh, crackdowns that you've seen since 2013, you talk about this towards the end of the book. I mean, it seems there's a long pattern of regime security crackdowns on these clinics and hospitals over the years, but this one is different, right? I mean, this one seems to be uh, rather more sweeping and intense than uh, than those earlier episodes, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And you know, you you, you saw under Mubarak. Um, certainly crackdowns on the Brotherhood, particularly after, you know, 2005. And then even in kind of 2010, uh, before the Arab Spring, basically all the Brotherhood's hospitals were closed because the regime was just under such pressure and it was kind of so worried about opposition mobilization, I guess rightly so. Um, But this was always kind of limited. It was kind of done with kind of a wink and a nod to the people in these facilities that this was only going to be a short time thing that, you know, nothing was really going to change over the long term. But I think post-2013, I mean, this is just kind of fundamental in the sense that the the bank accounts have been frozen, people have been removed from their positions, assets have been confiscated. Uh, and so this is very much kind of a long-term, uh, I think, more sweeping crackdown. And to that extent, I think that's kind of just somewhat in line with how the regime operates in general. I mean, this is not a regime that is building kind of a wide coalition. It's a regime that's kind of very narrowly based on uh, security services. Uh, and I think one reflection of that is the way that it's dealing with the opposition, the political opposition uh, that, you know, in other uh, regimes or in prior regimes, may have been dealt with with a little bit more diverse set of strategies. Well, I guess, I mean, this raises then kind of as a maybe a final point we can talk about is, you know, how central were these uh, social services then to the Muslim Brotherhood as an organization, whether it's the political strategy or the infrastructural backbone or the membership? I mean, if you if, if this is going to never be able to be rebuilt in the form that it was before, what does that say about the Muslim Brotherhood then as an organization or as a movement? Well, I mean, this, the social service provision has been a kind of a core aspect of the Muslim Brotherhood since its founding. And this was you know, one of the things that it was doing within 10, 15 years of its of its emergence in the 1920s, and you saw them build up this broad social service network, and then under Nasser, uh, it was basically confiscated and shut down. They were put in prison, you know, for, for decades, and when they came out, they basically had to build this social service apparatus from scratch, and so I think if we want to look for kind of parallels, I think that's the place to look, and you know, the Brotherhood, for the the way that I understand it, you know, kind of sees these social services as 
kind of part of this multifaceted project. I mean, on the one hand, yes, it's part of the way that they envision their responsibilities towards their fellow Muslims and right, kind of building this network of kind of solidarity and uh, and, and mutual benefit and, and, and just kind of a, you know, a sense that this is a core aspect of the way that they understand their religion. Um, I think there's, you know, also some more strategic aspects to it as well in the sense of, you know, it provides not necessarily benefits for Muslim Brotherhood members in terms of how they use the facilities, but in terms of, you know, how it gives uh, individuals an entree into the organization in terms of, you know, hiring medical students, providing tutoring, these types of things that are important kind of in this long-term institution building process. Uh, and so in that sense, like it's, it's going to be difficult for them. Um, you know, I think now in this, the period that the brotherhood is in most, if not all of their social services have been either shuttered or reoriented to provide aid for families and brotherhood members who have been, you know, killed or put in jail or disappeared. Um, but they've rebuilt their services from the ground up uh, in the past. And I wouldn't doubt that they could possibly do it again in the future. Well, all right. We've been speaking with uh, Stephen Brook of the University of Wisconsin-Madison about his new book, Winning Hearts and Votes, Social Services and the Islamist Political Advantage. Came out with Cornell University Press. Um, Stephen, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. 